Hey folks, season four, episode 26 of the AppSec podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Joff Hill, who speaks to us about the rapid threat modeling prototyping process. And this is his unique approach to how he does threat modeling and teaches others to do threat modeling at the speed of Agile and DevOps both. And you know, we talk about threat modeling quite a bit on this podcast, but that's okay. We're back at it again because Joff provides a unique perspective and we want you to be able to hear it. We hope you enjoy. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast where we're going to talk again about our favorite topic, threat modeling. Something that both Robert and I love and spend a lot of time focused on teaching other people how to do it and just trying to promote it across the industry. And so we're joined by Jeff Hill and Jeff is going to talk to us a little bit about his approach that's a little different than how everybody else is approaching this, which is why it's it's so intriguing to us. But Jeff, first of all, we always start for our listeners with what is your security origin story or how did you get into this crazy world that we call security? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, basically, my, my journey into the security world happened around 2002. I was working as a just a standard developer at Microsoft and a close friend of mine who happened to be working in a security group, an infrastructure security group, said, hey, you, you know you, you know a lot about hacking into things and everything like that. You know about screwing around with that stuff. Why don't you come over and work in our group? Because we don't have any app dev guys. And I thought it was a good idea. So I went over there. And then upon immediately getting in there, I got uh, steeped in the wisdom, as it were, of the Microsoft SDL, the security development lifecycle. And then I uh, got introduced to threat modeling and it all changed. Everything changed. And just like you guys, I was immediately enamored by the thought of threat modeling. Well, you know, you can actually put some kind of architectural security into place. Fantastic. So how long were you at Microsoft? About eight years. Eight years. Okay. So wait, 2002, yeah. does that mean you're there for the Gates memo when it, when it came it out live? Okay. There. I was there for the Gates memo, yeah. All right. For the just, bitter end, basically. Just, just quickly for those listeners that might not know exactly what that is give me give me just a quick sentence or two on what is the gates memo i just refer to it as the gates memo and a lot uh, of people know what it is but yeah i mean you could sum, sum it up by saying he basically got pissed off with microsoft once again finding itself in the news with with uh insecure products being delivered in an insecure fashion and without us thinking about thinking ahead by putting security in so he said this is ridiculous i'm getting sick and tired of this and i want things to change and so he basically put out this memo saying, you will create a security group and you will sort it out and you will get this done so that we're thinking ahead on security instead of, you know, security by design. So eventually the Gates memo <clears throat> brought up three fundamental characteristics that Microsoft kind of built upon, which were the ideas of secure by design, secure in by default and secure in delivery. And those three ideas right there then basically begat the Microsoft security development lifecycle. Yeah, and I think of that as the that, that's the the 
parent to all the other secure development life cycles that exist in the industry. I know I was at Cisco as that SDL was being built and we were having conversations with Microsoft and it get, getting advice from them about, hey, these are things that work. These are things that didn't work and in a very transparent manner. And something that I've always been been very fond of is the way that Microsoft shared that knowledge with with other companies along the way. Well, I was one of those guys, actually, because I was working then. I was already fully into into the security group, and I was one of the guys who was espousing that. And I helped to build out the uh, the agile form of the SDL and deliver it out to customers who started using agile. Yeah, that's that's very cool. That's that's probably a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> I was say, yeah, it'd be great to follow up. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear that uh, that story. Yeah, sure. I've got no problem with following up on it. It's quite, it's quite an interesting story of how you take a very heavyweight uh, development lifecycle, uh, the security development lifecycle, and you, you basically prune it to such a way that your customers can actually use it. Um, definitely an interesting path I did. Yeah, and so that'll be, folks, stay tuned for an upcoming episode <laughs> where we unpack the agile form of SDL. But for today, we're here to talk about threat modeling, something, like I said, that we all know and love. And it's kind of interesting. I was uh, talking to Adam Shostak maybe a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned you, Jeff, as somebody. He said, you got to check out what Jeff's doing in the world of threat modeling. He's doing stuff a little bit differently than we classically have approached it, which was intriguing to me. And so, hence the reason I reached out. And so, tell us the story about how you got into the, how you got into this this approach to threat modeling there's got to be some pain somewhere in the background uh, as to there's why you I, did something differently yeah i mean i was part of the uh part of a group called the um the security uh what were they called it was very a very specific security group that i was working with microsoft and we were a worldwide group and one of the things that i tried to do at one point was to implement threat modeling across a number of different internal customers and external customers and I found out that, that a lot of them didn't adopt to it because they didn't have the time and they didn't have the wherewithal to do it. So a lot of times I found myself working you know, in line with them to get the threat models out. And I found out that time and time again, the same issues came cropping up, that uh, we didn't have the time to finish a threat model. By the time we finished the threat model, the project was finished or the, the first iteration is finished uh, or the, the, the sprint storming was finished or whatever the case was, that we were throwing too much information into the model and that too little information was coming from the model back into the real world, which, which, which was development. Uh, the, the model was disconnected after our first few iterations because we'd build the model out and it would stop reflecting reality. Mm. <clears throat> and these, all these different issues right here really stressed me out because I, was, I had probably about at one point about 150 customers I was covering that I was trying to do in a very agile fashion and trying to get threat models completed and out to the, each one of them in a fashion that we, we were describing in a traditional way was next to impossible. So wait, so 100, 150, so you're working on 150 threat modeling projects simultaneously, trying to keep those all straight and... Yeah, a lot of them ended up just being your, your straight up, uh, what, I, what I call the CSV analysis, which is a common separated value analysis, which is you, give a, you, you just basically say, look, just list down your assets and we'll try to figure out how to get access to the assets, okay. move on. You know, if there were small projects, I ended up doing a lot of that. Uh, with the larger projects, so let's focus down to about a dozen projects that were larger projects. That's when I said, okay, look, I have to give you guys an actual threat model. I can't just kind of wing it and put down how, how do we access your assets. Yep. And yep. so 
in a, in a way, like the the, you know, the accessing the assets bit, the very bare bones CSV method that that worked, but it wasn't great because uh, it didn't it didn't give me any kind of information beyond what was you know how you can access the assets. Uh, then with the larger threat models, it ended up being that we got way too much into the weeds, and you found I, I found time and time again I was trying to boil the ocean, or at least the team was. And they're saying, why don't we do a threat model of this? And next thing you know, you're threat modeling TCP/IP for what reason? <laughs> I don't know. And you know, you sit there and you say, like, whoa, stop! You, you're doing too much. You, and that's when I started coming up with the idea of, hang on, we should do this in iterations. We should go back. And that's when I started reading up on agile architecture, and saying I should base this upon agile architecture, you know, principles before I go forward again. And that's when I started really building this out. So are you when you're when you're working through these 150 for the ones the bigger ones that you're actually doing threat modeling for are you following the classic Microsoft approach of data flow yeah. diagrams and stride and all that type of good stuff? Yeah. Uh, so and dread dread is dreadful. I always uh, that's dread. My I always dread yeah. dread whenever I see it. <laughs> it was it was dread was always well dread was something that never really worked for the impact for me because if you say to somebody I want you to tell me in a scale of 1 to 10 what this pain is, somebody would say, well, what does six mean? I have no idea. And so it started, you know, it just, how do you, how do you describe a six? So dread became to me a very difficult exercise to, to, you know, to get out, to predict from people. Yeah. It's, so like, when, you, it's like when you go to the doctor's office and they're like, Hey, what's your pain level on a scale of one to 10? Like I get 10 and I get one. I don't yeah, know. Like what's just, a five? Uh-huh. Like my stomach hurts at a five level. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, or I'm a seven and a half. And someone says, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't get it. And so, so that ended up being stride and stride, I've had my, my issues with stride in the past, but I think that, I think the stride, it, stride works for, you know, what it is. And that's a very simple mnemonic that provides you with attack potential, you know, attack uh, scenarios. And so, you know, the, the traditional way was that you sat, sat down there, you asked a lot of questions, you looked up the security requirements, you looked at the business requirements, you looked at the underlying architecture, and then you drew your own diagram, yep. which is your own interpretation of everything you read. And the urine diagram might not look even close to what the underlying, you know, architecture was, but it didn't matter because that's what you did. Yep. And then the second step you'd go through is you'd sit down with, again, a bunch of people. You take up their time and you take up your time. And then you start using elements of stride. You try to figure out where the boundaries, boundaries of trust lay. And again, that might cause some, you know, a bit of friction within the people because you never were able to describe it properly. And then you said, okay, well, once that's done... We're going to apply stride to certain things. Once you take the stride, then we're going to break that down into attack trees. And that's where I lost a lot of people, including myself. Because you sit down and you say like, okay, how, how much time are we going to spend on building this attack tree out? And you'll say, well, maybe about an hour, maybe half an hour. We don't know. We'll see. And then if you start building out too many attack trees, then about a month later, you find out that things have changed and, and you have to build a whole, whole new set of attack trees. And then it becomes kind of, it, it becomes a counterproductive action. Uh, so the attack trees very quickly went to the wayside for me. And then I carried on with the rest of the stuff, which was how still much, building how up. How much time are you spending? I'm sorry to interrupt, but how much time are you spending total in one of these threat models? Between, oh, I mean. Between DFDs, stride, attack trees. What, getting like, all r- the. Roughly, roughly how much time? It would, take me, it would take me roughly, we'll say for one of the bigger projects, it would take me roughly a day to accumulate all the information. From the security requirements, from the architectural diagrams, asking questions and all that right there. So about eight hours equivalent. Okay. And then maybe take me between eight to ten hours to actually get a DFD without people saying this is wrong or that's wrong and, and getting feedback from the team and everything like that. 
And in the meantime, I have to get all that done and then some in order to get it ready while we're still in sprint zero. Then I'd add all the information to it. And then inevitably we'd go back on the information and we start not arguing with disagreeing because it wouldn't just be saying spoofing here. It's, it would be saying, okay, let's break down every possible spoofing attack we can do. Yep. And let's describe every possible spoofing attack we can do. And so you do that. And it, you know, it ends up being a couple of days worth of work at the very least. Yep. Maybe, you know, maybe you're talking three days worth of work that you're, you're talking that you get it done. And by then, you know, if, if you're in a purely agile environment, well, the sprint team's already taken off. They've they spent like a day doing model storming and in sprint zero, and they're off to the races. And you're already behind the times because you're already telling them, well, you know, guys, you have to put in the mitigation that we've described here. It's like trying, saying, to, well, trying to change the engine on the airplane, right? After the plane right. is mid-flight, you're out there saying, well, we got we to swap out that engine. Exactly, exactly. We we got we got to do rewiring on all the on all the internal systems here. They're saying, but we're you know we just start our like we're, we're mid sprint. We've already finished with a couple of the things. You're way behind. I'm like, oh god, this is you know this is frustrating. Yeah. And so and then after doing this, you know, we'll say the the twelve that happened during that period of time were the frustrating bang your head against a wall until it's until your head stops hurting because either you banged it too many times, you knock yourself out, or you stop banging your head and you. You know, create a hole in the wall or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and I can, so I can certainly see how this doesn't scale, right? This is not an well, equation where I'm like, "Wow, if we just had ten more Jeffs, we could do an additional three thousand threat models per year." Like this isn't a this isn't a model that scales because the vet, the the end result is like you're you're describing here has a lot of problems and it's just it's taking a lot of hours per day. To be able to to get something, and it's questionable what the total, how how good that actual information is. Well, and the information always stay, stays frosty for a while. I mean, it stay, it goes still very quickly, especially in a highly agile environment. Mm -hmm. So you put all this information, you know, you take all this information, you create a bunch of documents. Generally, the documents get put in some place. I love someone someone referred to Confluence as a place where data goes to die, and I love that comment <laughs> because I totally agree with that. It's like you dump a bunch of documents up there and you forget about them. Because you're often you're doing something else. And then somebody comes back and says, hey, did you do a threat model on X? And you say, yeah, no problem. You dig it up and you find out that your threat model has no bearing to reality, you know, two or three iterations later. Because yeah. you haven't kept the threat model up and no one, no one else has because either they don't have the time or they don't have the experience you do. And you're basically back to square one. You're like, okay, this isn't very helpful because the threat model isn't responding to the current actions. The threat model is providing old advice. The threat model is put into a dead-end area, such as confluence, and the threat model hasn't got any outputs that, that, that the team can actually digest, can readily digest. So all of this led to serious frustrations. And I, that's how I decided, I mean, I have to look at it a different way, and that's what I have to actually start looking at it from an agile architecture point of view. And then also implementing the idea of rapid prototyping and kind of combine the two so I could get inside. And, and actually, this works very well with the DevOps environment. So let's let's explore a little bit now. I, mean, I feel like we've got a good handle on the problem space, and I right. wouldn't say I would argue with you about any of those things. <laughs> I totally agree with you know, and I've I've lived that life as well. I helped to roll out threat modeling at Cisco to twenty five thousand developers. So, um, yeah. I know that I know that scale problem and that and that pain. So, when you talk about rapid prototyping or rapid threat modeling here, what is what does that actually mean? Give me a definition first for that. Sure. So the rapid threat model prototyping philosophy is kind of a just-in-time philosophy, an 80-20 philosophy, if you think, you know, that way. 
it's basically you want to do 20% of the effort to get 8% of the way there. And you want, to do, you want to put in just enough information so that you can understand a model, so you can understand how to fix the issues or how to mitigate the issues, and so you can move to the next step and you can provide it back. And you also want it in such a way that is simplified in such a way that it might take a little bit of time of the security professional, but the actual development team can take over and can maintain and curate the threat model, the following threat model. So there are a number of different design ideas behind this. And one of them is to get rid of, and this might be controversial to you guys, I don't know, but to get rid of the idea of doing data flow diagrams. Uh, I Immediately I thought, if I can actually piggyback on top of the actual diagrams that the, that the architects and the designers make, like for example, the designers within a team, then I'm right close to the heart. So if the designers do a change, then if I base it upon his, his or her design, then the threat model will change too. So you're not, you're not saying, so you're not saying do away with, you're saying do away, rapid threat modeling prototyping does away with creating a DFD for the sole purpose of the threat model. Correct. Correct. What the, what the rapid threat modeling prototyping philosophy is, is use the current tools we have. Okay. So if, okay. if the team has created a design, team, team creates a design, piggyback on top of that. The team owns a design, the team changes design, and then we will use the change design instead of creating our own design, which forks off of that and then goes off to die somewhere. So does this, and, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Robert. No, I was going to ask, how is that design represented? Um, so when you say oh. design, is that by scanning code or how is that design represented? There are any number of different ways. Uh, so one of the ways that uh, the design is obviously represented is, is just by people drawing up on a draw on a on a whiteboard or something like that, taking a photo and then putting the photo in, you know, and creating a, a, an actual graphic design out of it, perhaps in Lucid charts or in Draw.io or something similar. Another way is to look at the code and to work backwards from the code if you already have code there. If you have, for example, Brownfield's design. So Brownfield's design is more adaptable to code, whereas a Greenfield design is probably best done with some kind of a a diagram, okay? The diagrams are usually the best because we're graphical at the very heart, human beings are. So usually I, I think it's best to start with some kind of a diagram to show people. i give you an example. When I was, wor- I was working over in Klarna this last week and I was teaching, there was, there was a Swedish uh, startup, a, um, a bank startup. And so I was teaching a number of different groups how to do the, the rapid threat model prototyping. And part of the whole thing was to get out there and to get them to do the design. Now, some of the guys who had gone in here hadn't actually done a design. And so when they, when they did the design, one of the first things they said, was, wow, we never actually visualized it like this, but we helped them to go through that and to help them develop out. So that was actually, by doing the design, helped them in other ways functionally in addition to non-functionally. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to put on my, my ex-Cisco hat here as somebody who had to do threat modeling at a large scale capacity. And so I guess my concern when we're, when we're saying we're going to use the existing designs and things that are there, I could imagine a lot of inconsistency in the design. And I, can, and, and I say this based on experience. I saw some designs where people did a really nice job and had great diagrams and very well documented. And I saw other things that were there was really no design behind them at all. So how do you deal with that I can see it's obvious how you would deal with it with the people that are doing a good job on their architecture diagrams. How do you? How does rapid threat modeling prototyping fit into the case where somebody isn't 
doing what they should be doing from a just a general system architecture design? Uh, so basically, again, we, we view it as being a just-in-time kind of philosophy. So if they give us a very rough overview of what their system looks like, let's say it's a brownfield system, for example, and then we, we work on that right there, we can actually work with it. Uh, you know, again, the philosophy is if we want to get the whole philosophy behind rapid threat model prototyping is to get the conversation started, not to finish a conversation. Okay. So if you can, if you consider that, you say, you know, just in time philosophy, get the conversation started, get some kind of a design up there. It doesn't have to be perfect. The minute you start trying to make it perfect, well, we're going to wait for a long while. Yep. Um, some teams may get it, but then other teams, which don't get it and don't get it perfectly, we can still work with that. We say, look, we can work with that design. We can work with what you, what you guys have. Let's, let's move forward and so, let's work with what you have. So they may draw you a picture on the whiteboard. What you're saying is in that case, you're not, gonna, you're not constraining them to the DFD language that we've, the classic no. threat modeling DFD. They can draw the picture any way they want. You, yeah, so you're going to operate on top of their or, picture. Sorry, apologies. Yeah, I didn't mean to talk over you. Yeah, so it, it ends up either being a context diagram or a process flow diagram, which to me are probably a lot more meaningful to the teams than a data flow diagram. Yeah. And now when you say um, context diagram, do you mean like you're not talking about like state, like a state diagram or anything? Or is that included as one of the things that you look at? You could. You could look at a state diagram. But what I mean context diagram is I mean very high level view things. Because a lot of times these different teams, when, I, when, you know, when you give them an hour, for example, at Klarna again, I gave them an hour to, to work with something. And in the hour, we got a, a fairly high level diagram. We were able to get some good threats out of that. And so the hour was useful to them that they, that they did. So what we want to do is we want to get some kind of a representation diagram for them. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be great. It just has to have just enough information to start the conversation. After the break, Joff explains where we go next. This episode of the Application Security Podcast is brought to you by Security Journey. Security Journey has a new weekly publication called High Five, five security articles that are worth your time. We scour the internet looking for the best articles on application and product security. We add in just a touch of sarcasm and snark in our descriptions. Just what security people and developers love. To sign up, visit www.securityjourney.com slash high five. That's slash H-I, the number five. Welcome back. Joff dives back and explains, now that we have a diagram, where do we go from here? So the next thing we want to take a look at is we want to get an idea. Because this, this, and you guys will probably agree with me, is to me, the most important step is getting the access control correct. And in order to get the access control issues out there, at least identify them first. Because I think that most problems can be pointed back to poor access control or lack of access control, um, such as injection issues, such as ele obviously elevating privilege, potentially other issues too. So in order to do that, we wanted to, we wanted, I wanted to get some way of identifying those quickly. And I looked at trust boundaries and I thought trust boundaries don't really do it for me because first of all, you're drawing lines around things. And second of all, you're not really, you can't, ultimately you can't automate this. So I went back and I said, well, what if I enumerated trust zones onto the various objects that existed in the diagrams, the various elements of the diagram. So trust zones are basically, I would say, how I, how I said it is I said one rule to the trust, the trust zones were that 
The number zero means it's outside of your trust, it means you have no control over whatever that element is. So generally, you know, if you're talking about a website, then obviously that's the human beings who interact with the website or the other services. If you're talking about internally, it could be other internal processes that interact with your, your system that you don't control. Because it's whatever, because because whatever, whatever you want to do, you want to make it relative to your system, whatever the threats are, mm-hmm. and therefore you want to you want to take that. And people have said to me, "Well, should we take a look? You know, take a look in terms of the whole company?" I said, "It's not helpful for you guys if you want to practice defense in depth, which is a very you know strong kind of architectural principle. Then you want to take you want to make your system resilient. And in order to make your system resilient, you have to take into account that every inbound from other systems, whether they're inside the company or not." are potentially inbound attack vectors, and therefore they're outside of your control. So the primary rule right here with doing zones of trust is you put zero on any of the outside interlocutors interlocutors who come into your system, and then inside your system, you rank the different elements by numbers, you order them by numbers based upon the criticality of the system. And that's kind of a, well, it's kind of a difficult way to explain it, but either like either the system directly requires more permission sets that sorry, this not the system, but the element in the system requires more permission sets and you know it should, or it has a more critical function. So something that would answer both those questions would be a database, for example. We know that databases require a pretty high uh, set of permissions to get access to or should. We know also that they're usually pretty critical to the system involved because they carry data at rest and are then potentially the primary attack vector for an attacker. So if you're looking at any kind of system, then you're then looking at all the elements with having a trust boundary number, or sorry, trust zone number associated with that element, starting from zero, which are elements outside of your, out of your, your control, all the way up to wherever the data ends up. Now, the general rule for this is if the data ends up sinking somewhere, if it ends up hitting the disk somewhere in your system, whether it's in the cloud or local, then that is your usually your highest number to start getting a ranking of all different elements. So, so do you keep? Go ahead. I, I was just I was just curious. I mean, I, I, that makes sense. I guess. Um, do you have some kind of a key to know, like like you just mentioned, certain items outside of your control inside? your system that you're trying to manage? I mean, do you have sort of a key to help you decide or somebody else decide when they're trying to build one of these uh, from scratch? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have general rules of thumb on what should be outside and stuff like that. Obviously, anything, you know, the easiest one is is if you're building a an, an internet-facing system, then anything that's outside of, the you know, your boundary devices, whatever they are, your DMZ, or you or your website, you know, your, your server-side website, then those are considered to be outside your control. People's devices, uh, people interacting with your system, other services interacting with your service endpoints, that kind of thing. If you're inside and you have, a, you have a system that only operates on the inside and you're developing it, then if you're personally developing everything and you have control over that, fine. If you have things that are shared, then you have some control over it. But if you have things that interact with you that are other systems inside the company, that you don't control at all, they're just either uh, interacting with you or pulling data from you, then they're zeros. They're zone zero. Okay, and so, and then I'm guessing that this ranking system that we use, we're gonna pay the most attention to the one 
at the top of the list, one being the most critical, that's where we're going to focus our efforts at a future stage. Is that the reason behind numbering them? Uh, there's, there's that, but there's also the fact that you can now start easily implementing all elements of stride on all of the, uh, on all the elements inside of the system. So I created a bunch of really fast rules. Like I said, it's, it's rapid threat model prototyping. Yep. So in order to, in order to implement this, what I did was I said, okay, the very first thing we want to do is we want to get the ranking. The ranking will allow us to quickly identify potential access control points and access control issues, which to me are the most important. Then going in, going down in line, then I, I implement other rules for spoofing, for tampering, for all the elements of stride, and we allocate those to each of the data flows and to the and to the elements inside of the system. We do that quickly using the rules that I developed, which are also based upon the difference and the values. That you that you created with the trust zones. Eventually, what you can do then afterwards is you can figure out criticality of, of data flows by looking at the, the numbers. Uh, so if you look at if you look at the cumulative value of all the numbers in a data flow, and if that's a higher value, then you probably want to concentrate more time on that because it's more critical value to you. You'd want to look at jumps between elements. If elements have a jump of of more than one in terms of their trust zones then you should probably focus more on those too. So it allows you to focus on areas and allows the team to kind of get around and start realizing where they really need to put their efforts to. Okay, so then what are some of the other other examples of the rules that you've described here? I mean, we talked about the ranking and then we talked about how you're throwing spoofing and then getting all, going all the way down through the stride and then potentially even yeah. adding some of those values. I mean, what? give me another example. I guess I'm a little fuzzy on what, what you mean by the rules. If you can give me another okay. one, that'd be great. So I've, I, so I've created a number of rules. I've created six rules, six basic rules for uh, the rapid threat model, R, RTMP. And rule, rule number one is always to get the authorization or get the elevation of privilege issues out there, the E on stride. And so what you do is you assign E to any element that uh, is the is the origin uh, between two two uh, element connect elements connecting. It's the origin element, and where there's a difference, a positive difference in um, in the zone. So, to give you an example, if if an outside person were coming into you, and uh, they were calling you, your website and calling to your web server, so they make a connection to your web server. The outside person would be a zero. Web server would probably be a one because you'd have low trust in it because you probably put it in a DMZ. And so therefore, you would have a difference of one, a positive difference of one. Therefore, that outside person potentially would be an elevation of privilege, privilege threat. So the criticality is not is a higher number of criticality better? Or does that mean something's more critical or is it a lower number? It means so you're going up in value from zero. So you're not going to go down in value. Uh, you may, but I'm, we're not going to discuss that right now yeah. for the simple. Yeah. So you, you start off with a zero and the zero is always out of your trust and then everything goes up in value and it's always relative to the model you're making. It's not, I, I've never been able to try to put it company wide, for example. Yeah, so yeah. a six model might be an eight on someone else's model, for example, or the equivalent of an eight. But essentially what you do is you take and you, and you, you assign every element inside of that model um, a, a zone of a zone of trust. And that'll be a positive number that's greater than zero. Does it have positive to be unique number. though, or does it? Does it? Can can you reuse no. the same number? Oh yeah, you can reuse the ah, same okay. number. No, 
Okay. So, you read, so ones with similar numbers mean they have a similar level of trust, basically. Okay. And and, you're, and, and, and whoever's the, mo- the, the modeler is able to set that for that given model, which allows them to move faster because they're not using, they're not having to look up some criticality value in a document somewhere. No, they just want no, and they, and they shouldn't be doing that. So basically to make it fast, they sit down with some, some of the team members and they basically say, okay, is this less or more critical to your system? Say, yes, it's more critical. Okay, then we'll put this number on. And then you go back and you readjust it. And it takes maybe 10, 15 minutes in my experience that you do this. And when you go down and you assign the numbers to each of the elements, then they then immediately the team can look at it and go, oh, wow, they notice the differences. They can see the numbers. And it's a lot easier to point out than drawing trust boundaries around different elements and stuff like that. And so similar elements, for example, anything with a an, with number one potentially would be in your DMZ, your DMZ. Yeah. Um, that would be an example. So you'd have a lot of different, like you might have a file server there. You might have, I hope not, but, but you might have a, a web server there, you know, that stuff like that. They're all in that, in that one zone. And then they call into interior applications or interior, sorry, elements, which would then have higher uh, levels of uh, higher zones of trust. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So that's, so we've talked about kind of the first rule is the authorization and I'm with you. I'm tracking with you now about the yeah. criticality levels and, and that, that's all making sense to me. And, and I will say this, I like the idea that this, that, that appears to be relying on the gut kind of feel of the developers, the people that are in the code and in the designs and everything, yeah. which is something I like because they, I, and and I, would, I probably said this a thousand times in my career when I'll, when I'll talk to developers. It's like, listen, I know threat modeling, but you know your code and your product a hundred times exactly. better than I ever will. So I'll, exactly. I'll let their gut drive the direction that we're going because they do know better. They live in, and breathe this thing, and I don't. Well, and, and, and you know, it's interesting you say that because, uh, again, it's fresh in my memory, but I, I've also spent quite a bit of time teaching BBC this, and they're taking up my my methodology too. But in all the sessions, what happened was generally you have them down there and I'd say, look, break down the numbers as fast as you possibly can and then go back and revise them. And it's interesting. They get together and they, they look back and they say, oh, actually, this is more critical. This is less critical. And they do some adjustments right there. And I just sit back and I give them a bit of advice and guidance. Uh, but I say, look, it's up to you guys to figure out the criticality. You know the systems. And they finish up with that. And then they end up being very happy with it. And then it's very easy to start implementing the rules. And the rules are out of the box. Like I said, the very first rule you figure out is the elevation of privilege. Yep. If it goes yep. a positive difference, then it's an elevation pr- potential elevation of privilege issue. If there's a jump, then that means you really should be, as, as a person who's either a threat model or developer, you really should be looking at that and be concerned about that particular jump. Is that, is that jump, rule number two, the jump? Well, it's, it's a sub of rule number one. Sub. Any of the differences. So a difference of... You know, a difference of more than one, for example, would be more concerning than a difference of one. But there's still there's still an elevation of privilege issue. I got it. Okay, difference of more than one. Got it. Maybe that there's a a fundamental flaw in your in your architecture. Exactly. All right. So now what's, this what's another rule? So the next rule is spoofing. So spoofing means basically anything coming from outside of your system into your system, and so any of the paths you have going from zero or less than zero, but we won't get into that, but zero into your system, you're, you're going to have p- potential spoofing issues. Now, again, think of these rules as being quick rules to set up stuff and to sort stuff out. They're not meant to be comprehensive. Again, they're going to cover the 80-20 part. Yep. And so yep. what you do is you get in general, you'll get, 
you usually get like some of the outside systems you can't control them. And then in general, you get the first layer of systems that are inside of your system. Sorry, the first layer of elements inside of your system, and they'll generally have spoofing issues on them because they're the they're the first ones being hit. And therefore, you're saying, okay, now we need to be sure that we have some form of identity that is being passed into the system from these different elements. Okay, so that 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 definitely makes sense, and I, I see how that's. I'm I'm starting to to get on board here with the idea because what I'm seeing is you've figured out a rule a simple rule-based system to quickly let somebody de- de- deduce if they're spoofing for example whereas yes. I would have to sit there and explain spoofing as far as here's what it is here's how it works and then I'd have to say okay look at this DFD and tell me if you see the opportunity for spoofing and you're just giving then, me a little calculation that says, okay, if there's a zero on this side and it's uh, talking to uh, something that's higher than a zero on this side, then there's a chance of spoofing. Yes. And then, of course, the difference in, the, in between the zero and the, and the higher than zero come into play because obviously a higher number means that, again, you've got a more critical component. You've got a critical difference here and you might have to go back and rethink your design. Yep. Um, but again, what it does is it starts a conversation. So tampering, again, tampering is from lower to higher anywhere in the system, but it's on the data flows or on the, on the connection flows, not on the elements. Okay. Because you know, the elements are an abstract way of pointing, you know, saying we're passing data of some kind, either a command or passing some kind of packet or something like that. Uh, repudiation. Now, repudiation is an interesting one. And Robert, I think I got into a bit of a discussion with you on LinkedIn a while back about repudiation. Right. I remember yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll stick my neck out again. I'll say, look, I, I don't really like explaining to people who aren't in security what non-repudiation means to repudiation. They don't get it. And so I sat back and I said, well, what the hell does it mean, actually? I mean, to me, repudiation means that either there's a lack of authentication or poor authentication or somewhere, somehow, somehow somewhere we've tampered with the integrity of the logging or some kind of uh, system like that. So to me... Repudiation is the previous two elements of stride, either a lack of authentication or a lack of, of integrity, which means either spoofing or and or uh, tampering has happened on the system to allow you to repudiate against it. So with repudiation, what you're going to find with the rules is you're going to find general repudiation will happen around the spoofing, obviously, and in some cases will happen with some of the tampering along the links on the interior. So, so you're saying it only applies to the links on the interior? No, re, no. Repudiation will happen. Well, repudiation will happen where spoofing happens for the most part. Okay. I, I don't know any exception where it hasn't in any of the cases I've done. Yeah. And then it also repudiation will happen, and then you'll look at contextually, but it'll happen on on the interior uh, connections where you can do tampering. Then this is again where the team comes in, and you say, "Look, does repudiation mean anything in this right here? I can tamper with this data." And they'll say, oh, yeah, we're doing logging here. Yeah, you can probably repudiate that if you can get in and trash the logs, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. So, again, it's your experience, but I'm driving the conversation to that area as opposed to, in general, in the old days, I'd say, ah, you know, repudiation means not repudiation and then everyone looked at me really funny. So and, I, I got to throw this out. Though. So the uh, the yeah. way that I <laughs> the way that I explain it when I talk about non-repudiation is this is the Bart Simpson principle. I didn't do it. <laughs> Nobody saw me do it. Can't prove anything. That's right. repudiation. <laughs> and yeah, if you've ever say, watched The Simpsons, you kind of you get you know what all the things Bart gets away with and whatnot. So, especially when stuff breaks right next to him when he's broken it. I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so that, that makes sense. Okay, so um, repudiation, information disclosure has a rule, I'm guessing? It does, from higher to lower zones. So the, the thinking here is, if you're passing information from a more privileged zone or a more critical zone to a less critical zone, then, you're probably, then that information probably has some kind of more privileged, I don't know, uh, capability around it or something like that. And so you might want to check it or you should check it. And then denial of service. Denial of service happens on the connections that are uh, connecting from the outside in because, in again, we're talking about rapid prototyping you know, rules here. If you're looking at the, 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 most, the most probable attacks that are going to happen from denial of service are, are going to be happening in, in, internally. They're going to be happening from external factors happening into your system. Yep. And then we already talked about elevation of privilege. We kind of started there. And yeah, and elevation of privilege to me is the most important. That's why you want to do that one first. Yep. I so think that, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's why we do the boundary. Now, the reason, again, the reason I did this is I can now, and, I've, and we've actually started to work on this, uh, in, in BBC, but you can do a simple methodology or you can do a simple, um, which I say a simple second step methodology right here where you can quickly add to, add the numbers together and quickly subtract them. Now, what I've done is I've also taken and, you know, on my own, I've created a system. I've created a, a, a software as a service, which does all this just, and adds other things too, because that's ultimately what I want to do is I want to make a system for people that they could use and they, they could put into a DevOps system and they could automate. Yeah, that's that's something I'm really interested in because I know you've stated before, like, for example, you could use a drawing from draw.io, push mm -hmm. that into to what you're doing, and then it would uh, evaluate based on all these rules that you're talking about. Is that essentially and, just querying, uh, let's uh, say, draw.io? draw.io, uh, querying the diagram and how it's put together, and then from there you can determine and apply all the things that you're talking about? Yes. Uh, and by the way, draw.io, they're impossible to work with because they don't, they don't provide uh, templates of, or they don't, they don't provide templates of what, they, of what they do, and so when they change their underlying XML, it's infuriating. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but they, I'm working with them now, so they're helping me. But uh, with, for example, with Draw.io or Lucidcharts, for example, they, you can store data inside of each of the objects, inside of each of the elements as name value pairs. So you can actually store the zone value and you can store stride inside of there, for example. Hmm. Now, once you do that, you can then save that diagram as an XML reference diagram and then you just parse through the XML and you pull the data out as necessary. So is your tool actually... So are, are you extending threats anywhere beyond stride or is this, oh, yeah. okay. So, so the tool oh. that you have and the methodology, obviously the methodology, the strides or the threats all come from the conversations. Does the yes. tool have an additional database of threats that are then deduced? It does. It does. So the RTMP is meant for doing with teams, as you, you know, rightfully deduced right there. And it's meant to, to introduce people to the concept. The tool then takes all of that right there and then adds to it. And it adds, it looks back and it, it takes the uh, CWE, uh, it uses CWE and CAPEC as basis okay. um, for, for uh, building out library of threats right there. It actually builds out a, an, and enriches a language that builds upon stride, but then enumerates upon, are you guys familiar with the security frame by any chance? You said the security, well, say the name again. Security frame? No, so it's a, it's no I'm not. Originally, oh, I'm not. A gentleman named J.D. Meyer at Microsoft created it, and he said it was 10 elements 
that basically when they, they did a whole bunch of uh, interviews with people and developers inside of Microsoft and continue to see these elements came up. And so they said, okay, we're going to make something called a security frame. So it's kind of like making the OWASP top 10 static, but then generalizing some of the issues in the OWASP top 10 and adding stride to it. I guess is the best way I can, I can manage to say it. But the security frame, it basically expands the six elements stride out into 10 elements. So it takes into account logging, takes into account cryptography, sessions, that kind of thing. And so then what my, what my software does, my software actually takes and uses that as a basis, as a communication basis. Uh, it, it maps it to stride, it maps it to the OSTEP 10 if you want to. And then as a the, the background, uses CWE currently and CAPEC for its data to mine to actually create out the threats. So that's the addition you would get by using the tool over the RTMP methodology. Okay. Cool. So that's, um, I think, something for our listeners to take a look at. And so, um, Jeff, where would you recommend people go to get more information about what you're doing? Um, potentially, is there a talk you've done recently somewhere public where people could look up slides and, and dive deeper into this topic? Okay, so I'm, well, I'm, I'm pretty active on, on Twitter, and I continue to maintain that, that active state right there. But then also GitHub, I have a GitHub repo which uh, if you look up two-tomantic threat modeling or rapid threat modeling, you'll find the GitHub repo. Um, and then I'm putting, basically right now, as I'm putting my current, uh, my current presentations up there, I'm adding a white paper to it. You can go to my website for more information, although the website is geared towards the tool, obviously, and not towards the, the methodology. Uh, in addition, if you want to find out more of where I'm going to be uh, teaching next or talking next, I will be posting that up on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Okay. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely post these links in the show notes for folks to be able to access. And so, Jeff, thank you for taking the time today to share this yeah. rapid threat modeling prototype type of thing. I think there's a lot of really <laughs> cool stuff that you're doing here. And um, sounds like you've really listened to the developers that you've worked with over the years, which I think is half the battle in trying to do threat modeling at scale. Yeah. And um, I look forward to diving into this deeper. And we're definitely going to schedule you again to come back and talk about Agile, SDL, and the journey that you went on there. So thanks for, for okay. being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I guess one more thing I'd like to say is just that with the RTMP, when you finish up, then obviously people go through, like there's a second wave of people when they talk after they've initially put out the, the elements of stride and they'll say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't apply here, that kind of thing. So that has to be said. But that's, a, that's another iteration that they do. Okay, so kind of weeding out the false positives. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Very cool. All right, we'll get that in. Okay. All right, well, thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please do us a favor and visit the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Bourne and TJ, and the outro is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You can find us on Twitter at AppSecPodcast or on the web at www.appsecpodcast.org.